Hey everybody, how you doing? I'm Aaron and this is Three Right Turns. And I want to talk a little bit today about the primary election process going on right now here in America. Talk about recent events in Iowa, conspiracy theories, political apathy, uh, topics around that subject. But before I get started, just another reminder to get out there and register to vote. As I just mentioned, Iowa and New Hampshire uh, caucuses and primaries, respectively, already in the history books. My state of Ohio's cutoff for registering for its primary election is February 18th, which is tomorrow. If you're listening to this podcast on its release day, don't fret, though. Ohio allows for online registration, and apparently it's quick and easy. But everybody listening to this podcast needs to get registered. If you are registered, check your registration status. Millions of people have been purged in the last few years from voter registrations in states all across the nation, largely in an effort to depress turnout and swing elections. And you'll never guess the kinds of people who are disproportionately targeted by these purges. Regardless, the only way you can make sure you have your vote count is to verify your registration status and fix any problems before your next election, which again, primaries are coming soon for everyone if they haven't already occurred. I like using vote411.org. Uh, it's a site maintained by the League of Women Voters since it doesn't ask you for your email and it just redirects you to your proper state verification and registration system. It took about 30 seconds for me to get online and check my registration. I did it just before I recorded this podcast, just to be sure. So please, please, please take the time to do that now. While you're doing it, check when your state's primary election is and put that in your calendar. Talk to your friends and family. Tell them about it. Ask them if they're registered. Give them the same information. I'm actually thinking of doing a video uh, of how I prep for an upcoming election. Uh, I've got a process down that starts with me filling out a sample ballot on vote411.org. I use their tools to research and compare candidates. I do some reading on candidates that I'm still not sure about. I look into the various levies and legislation propositions I'll be voting on so that when I go into that booth, I'm ready to fill out some ovals, baby. I don't know if that sounds interesting, if that would be valuable to people. Uh, let me know at 3RT at SwizzBold.com. And if enough people say, hey, that sounds good, I'll see if I can squeeze it in. Because the primaries are important. I mean, people are always bitching and complaining about not having good candidates to vote for, no one that they're excited for. But if you don't show up for primaries, you don't show up for your state and local elections. I mean, primaries are how we winnow down the list of candidates that we have now. And I think we have a pretty great list. There's a wide range of uh, political philosophies and thought and experiences in our current uh, slate of nominees. And state and local elections are not just important in your states and communities, but they're also essentially the farm teams for higher office. So get out there. I don't care how you do it. Like I said, I like using Vote 411 for years, and I've been using them for a long time, but check your status, get registered, and know what your state's ID requirements are when you show up to vote. Know your rights on election day, and get out there and do it. Get out there and vote. Unless, as I said, you're from Iowa and New Hampshire, because it's already too late. And I want to talk about Iowa, because I've seen a lot of people get upset by it, some for the right reasons, but many, I think, are for the wrong reasons. And I think the latter group of people are at a high risk for political disaffectation and alienation. And we just can't have that, especially since a lot of these people uh, are young and they're just starting to participate in the process. We just can't have it. We can't continue to have depressingly low youth turnout to vote. We can't have people thinking the system is rigged and dropping out. Because if you get to that point, 
I mean, your choice is to let the country slide into whatever flavor of fascist shithole that you fear the most, or I don't know, stockpiling guns and ammo and waiting for the inevitable revolution. I, I think that before we get to that point, I would suggest not giving up on the political process, fraught and fallible as it is, because I have yet to see a quote unquote rigged election in this country that would have not have been solved by a few percentage points more of people participating in that system. Now, lots of people are upset about what happened in Iowa, and objectively, it was a shit show. It wasn't a uniquely 2020 Democratic Party shit show like some would have you believe. People that have been around a few election cycles might remember the 2012 Iowa Republican caucus that gave the win to Mitt Romney. Then two weeks later, they had to sheepishly announce that actually it was Rick Santorum that won. You know, a real womp, womp moment. Because these caucuses can be tricky, it seems. Which begs the question, why does Iowa still run a caucus? Why is Iowa this small, rural, 91% white state get to kick things off in a nation of 330 million that's just 61% white and increasingly urban? I honestly can't tell you exactly for sure, but I'm going to share with you what I've learned. When this country was first founded, it was a lot less democratic than it is now, to put it mildly. The people that were allowed to vote were largely wealthy landowners, you know, the people that had actually a stake in the system. And then they really could only vote for the president and who they would send to represent them as the people in the House of Representatives. Judges were appointed, same as today, of course. And the two senators were appointed by the governments of each state, uh, not by the people, sort of like an ambassador from the state to the federal government to represent the interest of the state. Again, not the people. That was what the House of Representatives were for. The Constitution does not actually say how the state should run the process for selecting these candidates for the few spots that people could actually vote for. So when it came time to choose who these people would be voting for, the political bosses from each party would retreat to these stereotypically dark and smoke-filled rooms where they're smoking pipes and cigars and they're drinking cocktails and they're debating and arguing and generally just duking it out to decide whom they would appoint as those that would represent their party. They'd send their guy up against the other guy, you'd have an election, and then you'd have your man. I say man in all these examples because, well, women didn't get the right to vote in the United States until August of 1920. We haven't had a full century of women's suffrage in this country yet, believe it or not. But as the country progressed and people became more educated, more literate, more skeptical of letting these politically elite and connected bosses get to control the nomination and election processes, the United States became more directly democratic. More and more kinds of people were allowed to vote. Senators became elected rather than appointed in the early 20th century. And waves of corruption amongst the political elite and their dirty dealing bosses forced the parties to open their nomination processes to we, the people. But for some crazy reason, instead of going with some primary election process, what they did is literally open up those wild backroom smoke filled shenanigans to the people. Indeed, a concerned Swiss boulder on our subreddit described his experience with the Iowa caucus as follows. I attended this mess last night. I left after 60 minutes of standing in a junior high school gymnasium with 500 other people. We had not even begun the first count. It was madness. Honestly, it felt like a junior high dance, except the chaperones had far less control. Yikes. 
Uh, and I've seen people joking on Twitter that the Iowa caucus was essentially like selecting the president by playing multiple rounds of Red Rover, Red Rover, send Klobuchar over. But here is how the caucus is supposed supposed to work, because I've actually never looked into this. I never understood it, uh, but I took the time. Uh, and here is my understanding of how a caucus is supposed to run. So you have your local Democrats. Uh, the ones that are free that evening, that have multiple hours to burn, that don't have any mobility issues or concerns, because as you're going to see, that's going to be a potential problem. But you all meet up at a designated spot. It might be a junior high gym, in the case of our uh, Redditor here. It might be a church community center. It might be a public library. In some cases, I guess it's actually people's private residential homes. But only registered Democrats can attend this Democratic caucus. But if you're not registered as a party member, you may attend if you commit to being registered as a Democrat there in a spot. So you go to this large room with a few dozen to maybe several hundred people, and you sort yourselves into various groups of people that represent each category, like literally, physically so, uh, sort yourself. You've got a Buttigieg bunch. You've got a Band of Bernies. You've got a Warren of Warrens. You've got a literal Yang gang. You've got a Clob mob. You've got your Biden body. And I'm, I'm running out of puns, but if I left your favorite candidate out, I apologize. And you stand together in these groups, and people are supposed to give speeches to sway people from one camp to come to theirs. And this process goes on until they hold a round of what's called alignment. And this is a somewhat complicated process and an already seemingly complicated process where depending on how many state electors your particular caucus can send to the state, because again, remember, nothing in America is as easy as just one person, one vote, because you're not actually in this process voting for Warren or Biden or Sanders. You're voting for a group of people who will then go and formally vote for those people at a process at the state later. But anyway, the candidate that can send the most state delegates gets to send the most delegates to the national convention where the candidate actually can get the party's nomination. But there are rules. If your caucus group is small and you're only voting to send one of those state delegates, then whoever has the simple majority of the people standing in their group wins it. It's a done deal. But if there's multiple delegates up for grabs, then there's a certain percentage of people at the caucus that the candidate must cross to be considered viable. These percentages are different depending on how many delegates you can send, but let's say at this particular caucus that we're hypothetically at, that that threshold is 15%. If the poor Bidens only have 8% of the total people standing in their Biden body, they're forced to disperse and join one of the other candidates' mobs of people. And this process is called alignment. So alignment processes continue until all the remaining candidates are above that minimum uh, percentage threshold. In the case of a tie, the winner is decided by a coin flip, which actually happened uh, a few times in the, this past Iowa caucus, uh, videos of which circulated on Twitter to a nation of just disbelieving citizens. These totals then are duly noted, and now they get to decide how many of each of their delegates each candidate gets. And there's a formula used to divvy that up, which is the number of people standing in each group times the number of delegates that they're eligible to send to the state convention divided by the number of total caucus participants. So let's say you have 200 caucusers. You got 100 people standing in Pete Buttigieg's group. This caucus precinct has four state delegates up for grabs. So you take 100 people for Pete times four, the number of delegates, divide that by 200, which is the total number of people at the precinct, and the humble Hoosier goes home with two out of those four delegates. 
After you do this for all candidates, it's then sent to the Iowa Democratic Party headquarters. They're totaled and the winner is announced. Now, as you probably already know, there were additional problems. We didn't get a winner out of Iowa until the next week after the actual primary vote happened in New Hampshire, which thankfully doesn't do this caucus nonsense. In fact, very few states do. Aside from Iowa, you got Nevada, Wyoming, North Dakota, Guam, the U.S. Virgin Islands that still caucus because the process, as you can probably tell, is at best kind of crazy. In fact, to the best of my understanding, the reason Iowa goes first in the nation is in large part because their system was so complicated, so Byzantine, that it was allowed to go first so it could work itself out in plenty of time to participate in the Democratic National Convention, where again, the nominee is actually selected. Most states do a primary where you just have a simple ballot. It has all the possible candidates for your party. Sometimes uh, if it's an open uh, primary, you have uh, candidates from all the parties. And you cast a vote for who you think should be the nominee. You count it up. The person with the most votes gets the nomination. Now, this system is not without its flaws, too, particularly in the way we run it in the United States. These problems are largely responsible for the rigid two-party system we have in the U.S. and why third-party candidates are always, always, always jokes, protest votes, or otherwise wasted votes. But that's a topic for another day. But Iowa does these caucuses just like in the old, less democratic days. Why? Some people like this nostalgic possibility of a community leader being able to stand on their soapbox and holler at enough people the benefits of their candidate to sway their fellow citizens to their side. It feels more grassrootsy democratic, right? Incidentally, many Bernie Sanders supporters were very pro-caucus in the weeks and days leading up to Iowa because they felt that format played to their strengths, which is grassroots, bottoms-up enthusiasm and community engagement. Another benefit that's highly touted by these people who are proponents of caucuses is that while, yes, it's messy and complicated and it lasts a very long time, it's inherently secure because this process happens in plain sight. Hundreds of the people are in attendance. The numbers are all public. If any party tried to pull a fast one and quote unquote rig the election, people there could just call foul. Anyone can keep a record of the number of people standing in their groups before each alignment, after the alignment. Rigging a caucus is inherently harder to do than an election where people come in, fill out secret ballots, and then have no idea what their other fellow citizens are doing. And personally, while messy, I think this process does seem inherently better in another crucial way. It's better than this kind of first-past-the-post, winner-take-all system employed elsewhere in America. Because if I support Warren... But I also like Pete and I hate Bernie Sanders. Well, in the Iowa caucus, I can see Warren's non-viable and just kind of slide on over to the Pete pit. But in a primary system, I vote for Warren and that vote's just wasted. And Bernie might win a narrow victory over Pete, where if I could have voted Pete as my second choice, then he would have won. Some of you might be seeing where I'm going with this like two-party system enforcement because the penalty for wasting your vote on these potentially less viable candidates can be severe. But back to Iowa. Because of failures in the past, like selecting the wrong candidate in the case of the Republicans in 2012, but because of growing insecurity about election integrity in America... The Iowa Democrats wanted to have the speediest, most transparent, most open to scrutiny caucus ever. 
The caucus system and Iowa's primacy in United States politics is under constant threat, so they wanted to shore up their image in the eyes of Americans everywhere. In previous caucuses, the caucus locations only had to report that final number, the number of delegates each candidate had. None of the intermediate steps got reported. This year, they wanted to report those numbers from the initial groups, the alignments and realignments, and the final tallies so people could see the process working as intended and get additional insight into how the candidates' supporters would then make their choices and sort themselves after their fave was eliminated. Also, they planned on maintaining around 100 satellite locations, mostly on college campuses off-state around the country where Iowans were attending uh, college out of state, but also some sites spread around the world. And this had never been done before. This was a completely new feature. But all of this was going to slow down an already slow process. Enter a new piece of software called the Iowa Reporter. It was an app that was conceived as a way for caucus precincts to quickly input the counts of each round, quickly tabulate the alignment results by doing the math for them, and then securely send these final tallies into the Iowa Democratic Party, or the the IDP, where they could then be sent out to the media in record time. So the IDP paid 60 grand to a company to develop this app, and reportedly the firm was given about two months to develop it. This is, to put it mildly, not enough time to develop an app up to the task of running an election. I say this as a former app developer myself who's had to deal with privacy concerns, PCI DSS security concerns, HIPAA concerns. This is not enough time or money to even begin to do a credible job. So they knew they're going to have to cut corners. And to do this, one of the things they did was the app developers were not going to try to put this new app through either Google or iTunes app stores, because that would require a whole round of app review and approval. My God, it could be rejected. There'd be waiting times, and there was no time to do this. Instead, the app would be distributed manually to precinct captains and installed through a software development kit. Now, if you've ever sideloaded a Google app on your Android phone, you know it's not as easy as just clicking on a file. Modern phones are explicitly designed to not allow you to run apps not from the App Store because it's inherently insecure. There are a lot of hoops you have to jump through to make that even happen. And this process of loading it via an SDK, a software development kit, it's even more complicated. And have you seen the types of people that tend to run these rural election processes? Because I have in Indiana and Ohio, and they tend to be older, They tend to be less familiar with technology. Now, imagine trying to teach your grandparents how to sideload an app on their touchscreen cell phone. Now, imagine doing that 1,800 times because that's how many precincts there are total in Iowa. And you got to do this all in less than two months. So many precincts, for obvious reasons, didn't bother to load and test the app or they couldn't. Those that did, there was an update pushed out just two days before the caucus that fundamentally broke the app's ability to transmit data. Fortunately, there was an old backup phone system to manually call in your numbers, but it wasn't staffed to handle the entire workload. It was staffed to handle exceptions and outliers only. They intended the app to take the bulk of the the load. This app, by the way, was developed by a company called Shadow Inc., which, I mean, Jesus Christ, Shadow Inc., 
Uh, several campaigns had paid money to Shadow Inc. for unrelated software and political services, including Joe Biden, who paid $1,200, Pete Buttigieg, who paid $42,000, rather, and Kirsten Gillibrand, who paid $37,000, but no one really cared about her since she had dropped out of the race last August. Now, as a, again, former software developer, I don't think that's super unusual to have uh, people in one sphere and a very specialized sphere of software development contributing to that development. Like, you know, if you wanted to know who was developing convenience store software in North America, there's only like two or three companies. When someone quits at one company, they go to another company to be hired. Uh, It's pretty incestuous. And this is pretty common for niche software development. But it can contribute to a narrative, as we'll see. So you've got this weird process, which will be generating more data than usual, transmitted by a faulty app that will ultimately be up to understaffed phone workers to then collect and tabulate this data. Additionally, you've got the Des Moines Register, a local Iowa newspaper that does a final poll of the state to get the final gauge of where people are at uh, just before the caucuses. And they release these results on February 1st every year, just a few days before the election. And this is considered, I guess, a pivotal piece of data to take into your caucuses. So you know where everyone's standing. But at least one person uh, who was polled complained that they were not given Pete Buttigieg as a poll option. Now, it's possible this person made that up. It's possible the person conducting the poll made a human error. It's possible that there is a systemic problem causing Pete not to be listed as a polling option on a certain percentage of the polling interviews. But since the polling firm was unable to determine whether this was an isolated mistake or not, they decided to withhold the results of this poll altogether. Now, this is the first time in 76 years that this influential poll did not get released. But the poll was leaked to Twitter because, of course, it was. And it showed Sanders in the lead at 22% of the vote, followed by Warren with 18%, Buttigieg with 16%, Biden with 13%. But again, this poll was scrapped because the polling firm could not guarantee its integrity. However, several prominent Bernie supporters, such as Sean King, a self-proclaimed Bernie Sanders surrogate with over a million Twitter followers, claimed the poll was scrapped because Pete's team complained. Pete Buttigieg, for his part, His campaign had gone all in on Iowa. They spent tons of money running a massive operation on the ground, paying particular attention to the rural and suburban areas of the state that were being ignored by the other campaigns, concentrating on cities and college campuses. They hired paid staffers in Iowa at a rate that was unsustainable in the hopes of placing high or even winning, thus increasing his perceived viability, thus increasing his fundraising so that they could then sustain the rest of Pete's campaign. I have now given you all the background necessary to understand what was about to unfold. The night of the caucus, the app famously shit to bed. Many Iowans, like our intrepid Swizzbold listener, left early because of the long delays and confusion. The phone lines were slammed, first by the over 1,800 precincts trying to call in their numbers. But then the line was swamped with journalists all wanting to report on the unfolding chaos and to verify that, yes, indeed, the lines were busy. Speaking of chaos... This phone number was posted online that night, and trolls from 4chan quickly circulated it, uh, and other 'er ne'er-do-well places on the internet started adding to the crowds, cramming the lines. Finally, some precincts, out of sheer frustration or to shape various narratives emerging that night, started posting photos of their caucus counts online on Twitter, on Reddit, and Facebook. 
But these worksheets had the precinct captain's PIN numbers printed on them that was used to verify their identity and was easily visible. So then the trolls started calling in fake caucus counts too, increasing the confusion. It, it was utter chaos. In that chaos, Pete Buttigieg declared himself a winner, seeing a narrow margin of victory, which is 70% of the precincts managing to report in. You'll recall that winning Iowa was a key strategy to his campaign, and some has framed it as him having no choice because of this. But I don't know. It seems like you could always choose to wait for a democratic process to take place instead of just blindly following your campaign strategy. But, you know, Pete did what he's going to do. So the Sanders campaign then shot back saying, hey, we've got just 40 percent of the totals from our internal polling in, on, in our hands. But but we're looking victorious from our corner, especially since they're performing really well in those satellite caucus locations that are, again, largely amongst college campuses where Bernie Sanders is tending to be disproportionately popular. These brand new, never seen before, never used before satellite caucuses. Now, these Bernie Sanders supporters, and I think you guys and gals all know that I like Bernie. I mean, just from an Overton window standpoint alone. But a lot of his online supporters are real pieces of work. And a lot of them are now crying foul because what Pete did is kind of objectively a shitty thing to do. But now they're starting to read these reports about the Shadow Inc., and Pete spending tens of thousands of dollars with them, and him suppressing unfavorable polling numbers. And now Pete is a rat-fucking piece of shit. Whereas just days before, I'd watch guys like Hassan Piker and Sean King extolling the virtues of the Iowan caucus process, now they're decrying this confusing, undemocratic mess as a tool of the political elite to steal an election from Bernie, which quickly reopened old wounds from the 2016 Democratic primaries where... Bernie fans, uh, for reasons some legitimate and some not so much, felt they got shafted by this perceived rigging process by the establishment Democrats. Whereas it seemed to me the prevailing sentiment, even amongst the Democratic left, uh, was days before vote blue no matter who. Now you started seeing people hedge on that and retreat to the old Bernie or bust days. President Trump, as well as his campaign manager, and his sons, Trump Jr. and Eric, joined in, gleefully accusing the IDP of rigging an election against Bernie, stoking those fires. Meanwhile, more mainstream Democrats were seeing this Bernie reaction and having a 2016 primary campaign PTSD of their own, and they began firing back. And the longer things went on, the worse things got. Candidates winning by a coin flip in Polk County? What kind of banana republic shit is this anyway? By the time everything was over, it seemed like Pete was going to quote-unquote win in Iowa, which means he's going to get the majority of the state's delegates. He's going to get 14 to Senators 12 out of a possible of 41 up for grabs in Iowa. By the way, it takes something like 1,990 delegates to secure a presidential nomination on the national level. So this is pretty small potatoes, and this is despite the fact that Bernie got about 6,000 more caucus goers to vote for him and this weird people shuffle than Pete did. And that's because Iowa and a sort of state level version of the electoral college system we have in the United States has set itself up so that rural districts count more delegates per caucus than urban districts do. And I have mixed feelings about the electoral college myself, but I do hate hypocrisy 
And it's really bizarre to me that you have mainstream Democrats that are first to remind you that Republicans haven't won a popular vote for a presidential first term since George W. Bush are all suddenly rules are rules when their preferred candidate gets to nod over an outsider candidate as a result of a fundamentally undemocratic process. Do I think that Pete tried to rig the election by paying off Shadow Inc.? No. I try to go with incompetence as an explanation over malice in these situations. And I think I've demonstrated that there's ample evidence of incompetence in this process. Why would you choose a caucus to rig when they're infamously hard to rig? 170,000 people participate in this process. They can count who's standing in what circle as well as anybody. If there were serious discrepancies, we'd hear about them. These counts on each round were committed to paper. Why would a company rig a hard-to-rig election process for less than $40,000? But still, this is outrageous. I mean, as a progressive, I'm dismayed that with all eyes on them, with election integrity a leading issue of our times, with the bitterly contested primary of 2016 in recent memory, why, why, why would you fuck things up this badly? Why would you shoot yourself in the foot right out of the gate? This is literally the kickoff of the entire Democratic primary season. It's the first day in the process that will eventually select a nominee to compete against Donald Trump for president. Why? Why did the IDP have to make so many last minute changes to the process? Why did they have to rush an app into this process? It's it's outrageous. People are being held accountable. True that the chairman of the IDP has already stepped down, but it's too late. The damage is done. And dollars of donuts, I bet we haven't seen the last of this chairman, Troy Price. I'll bet he'll be in charge of some other Democratic organization or campaign by next election cycle. Just watch. This stuff keeps coming around. It keeps coming up. Why do we allow for this incompetence to continue and be rewarding? I admit it's incredibly, incredibly frustrating and disheartening. But I think it'd be a mistake to allow this incompetence to discourage us as Americans. The process was botched and it was slow and needlessly inflamed the passions of our fellow citizens. And we'll need those people to be united behind a Democratic candidate that eventually gets selected. But I do believe the process is ultimately accurate. And I'm frankly disappointed to see some Bernie Sanders supporters, including some of his more prominent online advocates, including friends of mine, use this supposed rigging as an excuse to tear down the faith of the people in the electoral process. In New Hampshire this week, uh, I guess it was last week at this point, they're complaining that the pundits were more interested in talking about the Klobuchar surge and Pete's second place finished and Bernie's win. And as I was sitting in bed reading all this, I'm like, my God. So I went to the front page of every website I could think of. And wherever I went, CNN, MSNBC, the New York Times, Washington Post, you know, Bernie's win was the top story of every site. But I think it's perfectly valid for a journalist, though, to say, well, you know, good for Bernie. But in my editorial, I'm going to say it's worrisome that in New Hampshire, about 65 percent of the vote went for more moderate candidates when Bernie got about 25 percent of the vote. Are Buttigieg and Klobuchar voters going to line up behind Bernie if their favorite candidate appears non-viable? I mean, maybe, but probably not. And I think that just points to a lot of work that we who want more progressive candidates in office need to do. It's good that Bernie won this primary. But if we just point and laugh and make fun and chide that old out-of-touch media for pointing out pertinent facts about the actual state of the election and how people are actually voting... 
we're doing ourselves a disservice. I mean, I want somebody like Bernie or Elizabeth Warren to win. That's why I'm doing this podcast to convince and persuade moderates and centrists, maybe even conservatives, if I haven't ran them off already, that our politics are out of whack with our interest as citizens. And that's going to take time. Like I pointed out in the Overton window discussion, it's it's taken over 30 years, more like 40 or 50, for our country to slide from a place where we had faith in our public institutions and schools, where you could support a family working just one job, where we had public works and infrastructure that were the envy of the world, to places where our schools are gutted, our waters poisoned, our roads and bridges are crumbling, where every economic downturn we're told we can't afford to take care of people anymore, but in every boom, it's accompanied by a massive tax cut for the wealthy. And most of us have gone along with that, either in the sense that our schools failed to educate us, or maybe our families or community failed us, or maybe we had too much faith in our politicians. But in this time of regression in America, half the time the country has been in control of the Democrats. And true, they've won some important victories in terms of human rights and freedoms and some economic reforms. But they've also co-presided over the complete theft and destruction of much of the lower and middle class in this country. And that's just a fact. You Google income inequality in America, flip that to an image search to make it real simple, and you just try to find a bar graph, a line chart, a pie chart, any kind of data point that says anything but what is increasingly obvious to us all, that we've been robbed. Our productivity keeps going up. We work longer and longer hours, but our piece of the pie keeps shrinking. And even now, I got to say, it really irks me to hear types like Joe Biden talk about returning to the politics of civility, reaching across the aisle and compromise, return to normalcy, return to sanity. People want to go back to the days of Obama, where each day we weren't greeted with a story or topic that made us groan and say, oh, God, now what? Where we could have John Stewart poking gentle fun at those zany Republicans with their crazy beliefs on abortion and gay rights and and Colbert could try to out Bill O'Reilly, Bill O'Reilly for laughs. I mean, hell, I'd take those days back in a heartbeat. But now I'm also awake to the many other crises we face in society, and I know going back to those days will not slow, much less reverse the slide of that Overton window. And that's going to doom us all. A lot of Bernie's politics and policies aren't really popular. They can be. I think they should be. But just because Bernie can get a million likes on Twitter doesn't mean enough people are comfortable with these policies. We have to argue things for like Medicare for all, especially single payer, you know, ban private insurance version of Medicare for all. We got to argue for things like the Green New Deal and not just amongst ourselves, although there is work to be done even amongst Democrats, as we're seeing in the primary. But we have to confront our friends, our family and our neighbors, and we have to persuade. We have to be better informed ourselves. We can't chase these damn conspiracy theories and narratives that say, oh, Bernie would be miles ahead if it weren't for the media, if it weren't for the party elites, if it weren't for Pete Buttigieg, the maniacal rat king who steals elections. And besides, he's 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 not gay enough and he, he, he doesn't kiss his husband with enough passion or whatever bug is up left Twitter's ass today. I'm, I'm part of that left Twitter, but this stuff is just crazy. It doesn't help persuade people. It doesn't help bring people to our side. I mean, it's it's long, painstaking work to have these conversations. I wish I'd started years ago. People always ask, hey, are you going to cover the, the election? And, and I'm kind of sort of doing it in this podcast in, in my own way. I'm talking about the election in terms of this deep dive into something that happened two weeks ago. 
But I think it's crucial to understand something that's gone wrong in U.S. politics right now that you'll miss if you just go on to Super Tuesday and will Joe get his momentum in South Carolina and is it unfair that no one's giving Bernie his due, etc. It, it took a long time for my worldview to build into what it's today. And it was built on an observation of history of politics, mostly. And I, how do I explain to kids like me 20 years ago, voting for the first time, that all this has happened before and all of it will happen again? And the answer isn't to tune out and stop paying attention. It's to tune in and start paying more attention, but to the right things. These things take time. I mean, you can go on to Twitch and you can go on to Twitter and there's a lot of people that have easy, feel-good answers. You know, fuck it all. Voting's a scam. Nothing's going to work. We need a revolution. And I don't think people can understand what's wrong with our society, though, without understanding what the right has done in terms of their think tanks and moving to Overton window. I don't think you can understand the problem of race in America unless you understand the fundamental problems with the concept of whiteness, how that concept has changed over the years, who the cultural cloaking devices of whiteness protects and, and who it doesn't. And it, it takes time to lay this all out. It takes time to build up the terminology to have these discussions. And unfortunately, I feel like time's not something we have a great deal of not at the individual level and certainly not in terms of the globe itself. But if we don't take time to understand our processes and our systems then and how they're intended to work and how they are working, it's like as not you're going to get chaos. And we certainly don't have time for that. So we're in a real catch-22 here. Yes, Iowa was a debacle and it was embarrassing and it will absolutely be used against us in this election. How can you trust these idiots to restructure healthcare in America when they can't even nominate a candidate without scandal and intrigue? This is going to be unironically said by a man who's presided over two generations worth of scandal and intrigue in just three short years, who, despite cutting every corner and trampling every check and balance, still can't get his damn wall built, still can't bring down the Affordable Care Act, still can't pass any kind of comprehensive infrastructure bill, despite its popularity, but is packing the courts with justices that will put every conceivable and even inconceivable roadblock to progressive legislations for an entire generation if we will sit back and let it happen. Because that's their plan. Starve the beast. Cripple government so it can't work. Then insist that it can't. Spend money like mad when they have power, so there's none left when they aren't. And then tisk tisk and scold the nation about balanced budgets. Play out the clock so that climate change is just a hoax. And if it's not, it's definitely not man-made. And if it's man-made, there's nothing we can do about it. And if there is something we can do about it, it's too late now. And we have to let hundreds and millions of die because, hey, it's them or us. So, yeah, I was embarrassing. I mean, I I'm not a Luddite. I think we can design better electronic voting systems. I mean, hell, the world shuffles around trillions of dollars every day, converting currencies along the way. And we trust those systems. But elections? I guess that's serious business. We just, just can't figure it out. I think we can do it right. But I don't know that we have the time to do it right that way. And I think paper works fine for now. People trust paper. We've got so many things to do and so much persuasion to do. As a software developer, I say paper is fine for now and it's better than whatever likely system some fly-by-night political party is going to be able to whip up in two months with $60,000. So yes, 
Iowa's a big fuck up and it's a disappointment, but it wasn't a conspiracy. And at the end of the day, it's 41 delegates out of 1,990 that somebody needs to become the Democratic nominee for president. In a related note, I want to consider an email I got from a concerned listener that I think gets to the heart of this discouragement and apathy that I think is bred by all this conspiracy stuff, all these toxic interactions we have with each other online, the fact that our political process sucks and some people feel like they have very little say in the matter. Uh, I got this a couple weeks ago and they say, I'm ashamed to admit that as of late, I've become quite pessimistic about our prospects for humanity and this has resulted in my newly acquired apathy. It's been a complete turnaround from who I've always been, an optimistic humanitarian, seeing the best in people and always advocating for empathy and tolerance, doing what I can to affect a positive change in others' lives. I feel like nothing I do will make a damn bit of difference. I hear you advocating for getting off our asses and opening doors for discussion, etc. And I constantly ask myself is, really? What can I possibly do? Why should I talk if nobody's listening? The world's going to hell. At least half our nation wants something different than what I want. So who am I to keep fighting? Why waste my time? If you have any concrete evidence that I could do anything that would matter, I'd do it. And I mean really matter. I don't mean standing with a sign at a rally or cold calling people to vote for candidates. I've been there, done that. I think it's a complete waste of time. If not, I'm just going to sit on the sidelines. I mean, I hear you, but I'm also reminded of a quote. The most common way people give up their power is by thinking that they don't have any. And that's by Alice Walker, the Pulitzer Prize winning author of The Color Purple. And I admit, like I've said in this here podcast, it's incredibly frustrating. The listener that shared this uh, with us uh, in this email is about 10 years older than me. I'm 43. And I know that it's it's crazy to see the same people over the stretch of like 30 years doing and saying the same shit, fighting the same battles. But, I mean, there's also a lot of signs of hope. I mean, I don't know where you're from. I don't think you shared that with me. But I've been saying this uh, in, in, among my friend group for a while now that just judging by my own conservative friends and family, I do think there are signs that things are changing because more and more people are affected by addiction and drugs, you know, with this wave of opiate addiction. Uh, it's not just something that's happening in our urban centers. They're having their friends and family get addicted, and they're being forced to learn about addiction beyond, well, don't just fuck up your life and get addicted, LOL. And I think people are really starting to get nervous about the environment. People are still making their damn snowball jokes, but we've had a really weird winter here in the Midwest. There's a, a nervousness, I think, that I'm detecting behind the laughter. I think we've had one day this entire winter that's got below freezing so far. It hit last week 65 degrees in Antarctica. That's crazy. And people get this on an intuitive level. People have seen the pictures of like Glacier National Park in Montana. And in the 1960s, there was 35 named glaciers in this park. Now there's just 26. Again, last week, we hit a record high of CO2 saturation in the atmosphere last week. 416 parts per million. In 1850, it was 285. In 1901, it was 296. In 1960, it's 317. These are just facts that are like a drip, 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 and they're hard to ignore. Uh, people know in the last 40 years, incarceration has increased with rates upwards of 500%, despite nearly every metric of crime decreasing over that same time period. Why? Why is this happening? 
The problem of homelessness is really coming to a head in a lot of urban centers all across America. It's real easy to chart this rise of homelessness with the rise of income inequality that started in the 1970s. I don't know who your friends or family are, but I'm starting to make headway with mine with calm but firm discussions of these facts. I mean, you have to be smart about it. You can't just jump on them right away with accusations of racism and phobias and a bunch of stuff that they probably doesn't accurately frame how they feel and how they feel about themselves and how they look at things anyway. But don't let them get away with dismissing your facts with their feelings or opinions either. Don't be afraid if things get heated, but it's often better to back off and allow things to calm down rather than escalate. But but don't put up with them disrespecting you either. I mean... If you're this apathetic, I think you should take some time off, recharge. Maybe don't think about politics for a while. I don't think you can get away with ignoring it completely. I think you have to vote on every election. That's just a bare minimum. Every year, every November, do whatever you need to do to keep track of special elections so you don't miss those. Maybe while you're at the filling station, look at the front page of the newspaper. They they conceal that type of information there. That's your minimum obligation as a citizen, and I will not let you off the hook for it. But you don't have to watch the news every night or think about politics all the time and obsess yourself by, you know, making yourself go crazy with uh, Twitter conspiracies and Twitter outrage to show up once a year and vote for the most progressive candidate that's available to you. You just don't. It's it's real easy to do without sending yourself into a tizzy about other stuff. I, I notice you're skeptical of protesting and phone banking and I don't know. I personally, it's something that's just a constant source of amazement that there hasn't been massive widespread protests since essentially the initial ones when Trump took office. Like I look at stuff that goes on in France and I see them taking to the street in massive numbers to protest cuts in budget and pensions. Uh, When I look over at Hong Kong and see them still going strong against mainland China in the face of crazy opposition, I wonder what do they got that we don't? I don't know a lot of it is that we're job insecure and losing our job means losing money and losing access to health care, loss of our homes potentially, and countries that have better safety nets don't have to worry about that as much. But still, for whatever reason, it's just not something we do. I mean, we, we've done it in the past when labor first emerged as a power in the early 20th century during the Vietnam War. But for whatever reason, we're just not there yet. Now, phone banking, if you're in a district where the margin of victory is in the single digit points and there's a lot of people that are in that position, then it is effective. Absolutely. It's not going to swing an election big, but that one or two percentage points, absolutely, it's proven to work. But it's also pretty effective just to keep your friends engaged. Just remind them of the elections, persuade them on the issues. But I I just don't think we can give up. Like doing things might not work there and there's going to be disappointments. Let's say that we get a super progressive candidate in the White House in 2020. They're probably not going to be able to do much. But I don't know, maybe we can take back the Senate, but we won't have a super majority to push things through. Maybe we can get one thing a year through. But hopefully we'll move that Overton window back in the other direction. We'll start conversations about what does socialized medicine look like? Why are other countries smaller and less wealthy than us able to implement it? Maybe we'll get a chance of uh, pushing through a bunch of executive orders that can make things easier in minorities. Maybe we can legalize some drugs. Maybe we'll get a bunch of people out of prison. Maybe we can restore the voting rights of some of these people wrongfully imprisoned. Maybe that snowballs into bigger victories. Maybe we'll swing a few states our way that have been red and are turning purple. 
But if we don't do anything, if we sit on the sidelines, you're guaranteeing that none of that's going to happen. And I just think that there was a time when the American conservatives were the ones out in the wilderness wondering if they'd ever win an election again, when the country had essentially been under democratic control since the Great Depression. This is just what it feels like when you're at the bottom of a political canyon. We can't give up. We've got to argue. We've got to persuade. We got to found and fund our own think tanks. I don't know how to do that. I'm not a billionaire. We have billionaires on our side. What are they doing? What are they spending their money on? I don't know. It's something we need to look at. We've got to fight the hypocrisy and liars in our own centers of power. We have to have these difficult conversations in our own home among our own people. I keep coming back to that, but it's the truth. We have to persuade. If these things were popular, the elections will take care of themselves. They're not popular. They should be. Let's talk about them. And I know it's hard. Like I seriously want to throw up every time I sit down and record one of these things because it sucks, but it's got to be done. Uh, if you need to unplug and recharge, do it, but you can't stay in sleep mode. If you're in a hopeless state and district that's impossibly red, that you can't possibly swing back, donate to a campaign that's not. There's a lot of websites set up to let you do this. I, I don't agree with everything that the crooked media guys are doing. Uh, they're not my favorite, but they have their Vote Save America site to help you find those races. Uh, Swing Blue is another site that can help you find, you know, if you're in a hopeless place yourself, you can give some money to a place that's not. Um, I just signed up for the Citizens Climate Lobby just two days ago. I kept reading uh, from several climate change experts this the name of this lobbying organization, and they said it's the best thing I can do as a civilian to affect politics around climate change. So I signed up and already I'm put in touch with my local chapter here in Cincinnati. And you know what? I bet it's going to entail writing some checks. I bet it's going to entail going out and talking to some people. I know it's going to entail me learning a lot of new things, but it's something that I can do. I mean, I don't know if the Democrats aren't floating your boat. Maybe check in with the local Democratic Socialist of America. Shake things up. The point is, yes, take a break if you need it, but you got to get back in a fight when you can. We might go down, but damn, why not go down swinging? And by the way, while you're feeling defeated... There are those on the other side gearing up for Civil War too. I don't think it's all that likely to happen, but then again, I'd hate to be caught napping if it does. So that's it for this week. Thanks for stopping by. I'd like to send out a special thanks to all our patrons who showed up in our first ever Patreon live stream. Uh, Jim joined me the, this last week with Cecily and talked about a book he read, Evicted by Matthew Desmond, doing a deep dive into the economics and politics of housing, especially around the poor. It's very interesting stuff, and if that sounds like something you'd be into, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash swizzbold. You can get signed up and watch or listen to that archive of that stream right now, and you'll be signed up in time to maybe participate in next month's. Speaking of patrons, I want to send out a special shout-out to Kira Grushchow and Angelo Marano uh, for being our Fred-level patrons. Thank you very much. Couldn't do the podcast without you. If you have feedback, please send it in to 3RT at SwizzBold.com. Follow along on all social medias at SwizzBold. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to our podcast. Next week, I'll be back on One Weird Trick with my podmate Cecily, talking about how we can live healthier and happier lives. Until then, don't give up. We're just getting started. Go out and register to vote. Make some noise in these primaries. And I'll see you back in two weeks. 